Hello and welcome to the Minimum Competence episode for Tuesday, November 28th, 2023. I'm your host for today, Gina Leahy, a real estate and finance attorney from Philadelphia. In today's episode, we have Binance's CEO must stay in the U.S., the NLRB finds that Starbucks illegally fired union workers, a new SEC regulation aimed at reducing conflict of interest transactions and securitizations, and in his latest column at Bloomberg, my co-host Andrew Leahy writes about the U.K.'s latest attempt on cracking down on electronic sales suppression. Let's fill ourselves with as much peppermint and cocoa confections as we can and read today's legal news. But first, a quick note here at the top of the show. Reviews and ratings go a long way towards surfacing our content on podcasting platforms. If you have a moment and wouldn't mind very much, would you tap over to your podcast player of choice and give us a star rating, a thumbs up, a heart, or whatever positive affirmation you can? It'd be much appreciated. Sorry for the interruption and let's get to it. On this day in legal history, November 28th, marks a pivotal moment in the advancement of women's rights in politics with the entry of Lady Astor into the British Parliament. In 1919, Lady Nancy Astor became the first woman to take her seat as a member of Parliament, breaking centuries of male-only representation in the UK's House of Commons. Her election was a landmark achievement not only for women in the United Kingdom, but also for women's political participation worldwide. Astor's journey to the parliament was set in motion by a combination of societal changes and personal ambition. Born in Virginia, she moved to England after her first marriage and later married Waldolf Astor, a British newspaper proprietor and politician. When her husband ascended to the House of Lords upon inheriting his father's title, his common seat became vacant and Nancy Astor decided to run for it. Her campaign faced numerous challenges, including skepticism and opposition rooted in traditional gender roles. Despite these hurdles, Astor's charisma, commitment, and the support of the women's suffrage movement propelled her to victory. Her election was a culmination of the long struggle for women's suffrage in the UK, coming just a year after women over the age of 30 were granted the right to vote. Lady Astor was known for her wit, her advocacy for women and children's rights, and her outspoken stance on a range of issues. Her tenure in Parliament, which lasted until 1945, paved the way for future generations of women in politics, setting a precedent that challenged the norms of political representation and gender roles in government. Lady Astor's legacy continues to inspire and remind us of the importance of diversity and representation in democratic institutions. Cheng Peng Zhao, the former CEO of Binance and a citizen of both Canada and the United Arab Emirates, is currently required to remain in the United States. This follows his guilty plea to violating U.S. anti-money laundering laws. U.S. District Judge Richard Jones in Seattle is reviewing whether Zhao should stay in the U.S. until his February sentencing. Zhao stepped down from his role at Binance, which also agreed to pay over $4.3 billion for breaking U.S. laws. Despite arguments that Zhao is not a flight risk, the government expressed concerns about securing his return for sentencing, given the lack of an extradition treaty with the United Arab Emirates. Zhao, facing a maximum of 18 months in prison, has agreed not to appeal any sentence of that length. 
A National Labor Relations Board judge ruled that Starbucks Corporation unlawfully terminated two workers at a Portland, Oregon store due to their union activities, among other unfair labor practices. The violations also involve discriminatory enforcement of dress code against union supporters and blocking union-related information on a store bulletin board. This decision is part of a series of cases where Starbucks has been found to breach federal labor laws, with numerous complaints still pending. The Portland store unionized in July 2022, prompting the ruling, which included sanctions against Starbucks for withholding requested information, including company manuals and information on the so-called barista approach. While the judge refrained from imposing all requested penalties due to judicial precedents, adverse inferences were made against Starbucks for failing to produce such relevant information. Starbucks intends to appeal the decision, maintaining that their actions adhere to lawful policies regarding store appearance and safety, rather than being a response to union involvement. The judge's decision highlighted the significance of withheld documents and testimony in drawing adverse conclusions against Starbucks. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission implemented a new rule on Monday in line with the Dodd-Frank law designed to prevent traders in asset-backed securities from engaging in activities that mimic behavior seen during the 2008 financial crisis. The rule prevents securitization participants like underwriters, placement agents, and sponsors from engaging in transactions that involve betting against the same securities they sell to investors. Exceptions are made for activities like risk hedging. SEC Chair Gary Gensler highlighted that this rule specifically addresses a sector that played a significant role in the 2008 financial crisis. The rule has undergone several modifications to include exceptions for affiliates not acting jointly with traders and for investors holding long positions as opposed to those betting on securities decline. Although four of the SEC's five members approved the rule, Republican Commissioner Hester Pierce, who had previously supported the proposal with reservations, voted against it. The implementation of this rule comes after instances such as Goldman Sachs' 2010 settlement, where the bank faced allegations of misleading investors about mortgage-backed securities. The SEC plans to enforce compliance with this rule for asset-backed securities with closing dates occurring 18 months after its publication in the Federal Register. It's Column Tuesday, where we get to see what my co-host Andrew Leahy is working on at his weekly column at Bloomberg Law. This week, Leahy writes about the concerning prevalence of electronic sales suppression, a form of tax fraud via software manipulation of transaction values. By way of very brief background, when a business makes a sale, they collect sales tax from the customer, which is meant to be remitted to the government. However, the business can alter or delete the transaction records, essentially erasing or reducing the reported sales. Think of your local restaurant that deletes large cash transactions from its records and pockets the sales tax collected on those transactions. Without the record of such sale, the government does not know that such sales tax was collected on behalf of the government by the business, and the business is able to pocket that money. This manipulation allows them to underreport their earnings and evade paying the accurate amount of sales tax owed to the government. This fraudulent practice enables businesses to retain tax funds that should rightfully go to the government, resulting in substantial revenue loss for tax authorities. 
A five-year probe in 2021 found electronic sales suppression devices in one-fifth of California restaurants. As early as 2003, Germany reported a yearly tax revenue loss from electronic sales suppression in the billions of euros, and there's no indication that electronic sales suppression has diminished since then. The UK's response to this issue, as outlined in guidance FS68, involves a harsh crackdown, urging electronic sales suppression users to confess or face severe penalties. However, the defined scope of what constitutes an electronic sales suppression system under this guidance is overly broad. It encompasses common business tools like Excel or Google Sheets, creating a risk of penalization for possessing such software. The approach raises global concerns, especially within the Joint Chiefs of Global Tax Enforcement, the J5, a collaboration of five countries. Their coordination means actions taken by one member may have repercussion for others, potentially impacting tax enforcement internationally. The UK's strategy significantly shifts the landscape of tax compliance, creating a gray area for legitimate software users and possibly shifting the burden of proof onto businesses to demonstrate innocence rather than the authorities proving guilt. This overreach poses a risk of unwarranted audits, particularly burdening small and medium-sized enterprises that lack resources for compliance. Moreover, this crackdown might discourage the adoption of new technologies, as even AI-driven accounting systems could fall under suspicion. The fear is that the stringent policy could hinder technological innovation essential for business operations. Looking beyond the UK, Canada and Australia have implemented different approaches to combat electronic sales suppression, utilizing technology and partnerships with businesses. However, the concern remains that the UK's expansive enforcement approach might influence global tax enforcement practices. Ultimately, while the intent of the UK's crackdown on electronic sales suppression is to protect revenue and competition, its execution risks unintentionally ensnaring compliant businesses, stifling innovation, and creating a climate of uncertainty. Thank you so much for listening to Minimum Competence, your daily news podcast for lawyers. If you're looking for more than Minimum Competence, links to further reading on all of the topics touched on today are in the show notes. If you have any questions or story suggestions, find us on Mastodon on the esq.social instance. I'm at Gina and my co-host Andrew is at Andrew. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and do not represent those of any organization we may be affiliated with. Nothing here should be construed as legal advice because it isn't. Reviews go a long way towards helping new listeners to find our show. If you have a moment and can leave a rating or review on your podcast player, we'd appreciate it. And if you know someone that might be interested in a story we cover, consider sending them the episode. Minimum Competence is available at minimumcomp.com and wherever you get your finely crafted podcast. If you haven't checked out the website in a while, give it a look. There are complete transcripts and resources for each episode and its corresponding segments, as well as an opportunity to receive new episodes in email newsletter form. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And until then, remember, the best way to fight off the flu is to eat a teaspoon of the season's first snow. That's not true. Please don't do that. <laughs>